Welcome, guys. So, here with a uh, cane, <laughs> and um, today's talk is going to be a little intense. It's going to be a little provocative. Um, our intention is not to be mean or to hurt people, but it's to address really important issues that we're facing as modern yoga practitioners, as modern yogis. And the topic for today is the yoga ego. So, Kane, can you tell us a little bit about what you think or what that means? Yeah, well, I'll start with a little story that happened. Um, I was talking with somebody who I had just met, and they were asking me what I do, and I told them, you know, I've taught yoga for many years, I teach meditation and do these different things, and the conversation got going, and they, they said, can I tell you about an experience I had, you know, with yoga, and why I would like to try yoga, but I, I ended up not trying yoga yet and I was fascinated to hear her story to make the story short essentially she had gone to a yoga studio and had been in the lobby and looked at the yoga schedule and sort of was hanging out trying to figure out what kind of path she would buy or what kind of class she might take and she was just taking it all in and she felt that she was so excluded or that she was being judged. This woman was a, she didn't have the perfect yoga body. Let's just say that. Um, and she was in this space where she felt, she felt that she was an outsider and felt really uncomfortable just being in the studio talking with people and connecting to people and felt that, that there was a certain kind of air of elitism. This is the way she put it to me. Mm-hmm. And, and, I started talking with her about it and sort of saying, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, having taught yoga for many years, that yoga, yoga circles can often come across as being sort of holier than thou or elitist or having some kind of bubble that's hard to burst. And we mm-hmm. talked about it for a little bit and then, mm-hmm. you know, went on our way. It really broke my heart. That experience just, it sticks in my mind and it sticks in my heart as I felt ashamed and guilty on behalf of us all who have anything to do with the yoga, the propagation of yoga and the teaching of yoga mm-hmm. for creating a world where people might have an experience like that. And it's not mm-hmm. the first time I heard somebody say that. And of course, mm-hmm. I've reprimanded people in yoga teacher training for for coming across that way as if they'd learned something that made them better than other people. Mm-hmm. And probably I'm guilty of it myself. Right. Um, so that moment kind of crystallized for me that this is a thing this is a thing where people practice yoga, they learn something about yoga, and then without knowing it, it's not that there's an ill intent, but there's a sense of identification with the persona of being a person who practices yoga and mm. spiritual teachings mm. and all of the things that might go along with that. It might include diet. It might include right. lifestyle. It might include what kind of clothes or fashion you're into. It might include what kind of jewelry you're into, what kind of makeup you wear. As we know, it, it can become an entire aesthetic world that you dwell in, that, mm-hmm. that you exude, I'm a yoga person, or I'm a spiritual person. Right. And without knowing it, what's happening is that the part of us that actually doesn't really know who we are and what we're doing here fixates on a new costume, a new personality. And that personality and that costume stand between us and the direct, usually quite uncomfortable experience of our raw humanness. And we use that new persona to hide behind and present ourselves socially in a way that we're looking for confirmation that we're spiritually advanced mm-hmm. and that we've attained something um, better than ordinary. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Well, until someone points out that, that a person is doing that, it's operating under the level of the conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. And so there's a phenomenon which in yogic science is called fixation, right? Or identification mm-hmm. that's going on that ironically, the whole yogic technology is designed to identify, expose, and then eradicate systematically 
the tendency that we have to fixate or do ego clinging, to mm -hmm. fixate on forms and to embody particular forms as a way of hiding from the reality of impermanence or hiding from the reality of interdependence mm -hmm. or hiding from the reality of emptiness or hiding from right. the reality of uncertainty right. or emotional difficulty or pain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so this is what, when I talk about the notion of yoga ego, I'm talking about the formation of a, of a solidified persona that, um, that serves to actually do the exact opposite of what the yoga system was meant to do was meant to or do designed to yeah right yeah. and so we have a we have a big paradox here and and we need to talk about it it's a huge elephant in the room it's something when i go teach at a yoga conference or go you know to a yoga event i quite often see the you know the big yoga personalities in the room quite often identify with their own persona as being a big yoga personality. Mm -hmm. And quite often in my experience can be difficult to contact. And their humanness is hiding behind a large projection of spiritual egoism. Mm -hmm. And admittedly, that might be my purely my perception, but that has repeatedly been my experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a huge disservice to what yoga is really about. And I, mm -hmm. and I feel that we collectively, as a community of yoga practitioners and teachers, by talking about this and allowing ourselves to be aware that we're all subject to this um, because of the basic vulnerability around, around, you know, around the egoic aspect of not knowing that we're vulnerable to clasping on to things as teachers and students. But if we can talk about it and, um, and take away the, the fear around it, then I think we can actually use the yoga much more closely to the way it was originally designed mm -hmm. to bring this stuff to the surface and to look at it um, and to actually have some awakening around, around ego clinging. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, so I mean, we we talked a little bit about this stuff and the what the fuck is yoga class or mm. sorry talk. Yeah, right? we addressed some of it, uh, and we're going a little bit deeper and focusing in on it because it's something that's, like you said, a big the big pink elephant in the room that we're not talking about. Um, one of them at least. <laughs> yeah, one of them. I know it's many, but it is. Yoga can be a lot of different things to different people, and it's fine for that. But when we look back at what yoga was and what yoga technology is and can be in terms of a spiritual tool, I think it's really important to to look a little bit more closely at, at what that definition is, right? If we're practicing yoga as a liberation tool, if we're really engaging yoga as a spiritual practice, we're looking at, like you said, softening the grasp of ego identification and I like the way you put it in terms of you know the, the ego wants to identify because it's scared I would say right it's freaked out we're freaked out so we want something to hold on to mm -hmm. to feel secure mm -hmm. and so we're jumping when we find yoga we jump to yoga and this yoga identity that we start to build unconsciously in the yoga community and our and our, sorry our yoga ego status depending on how we look or what we're wearing or how many yoga friends we have or how many classes we went to or go to or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's all fine for what it is. I think the, the sort of challenge and or inquiry is, okay, well, why are we doing that? Like what's motivating all of that in a sense, right? And just taking a little bit closer look at that mm -hmm. and, and seeing where that's leading. Because again, if we're practicing, our intention is to become more free or liberated, um, then is our practice actually contributing to that or is our practice exasperating the exact opposite as you were saying like is it making our ego tendencies more strong mm -hmm. more subvert right more underground right right are our like is our clinging still there really strongly are we even looking at it um i think we were talking earlier about how probably a lot of us yoga practitioners don't have a clear understanding of the kleshas and a lot of i think yogis also poo poo the yoga sutras and they're like, oh, it's just not relevant anymore, mm -hmm. which I don't think is true. I don't either. At all. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of gems and jewels in the sutras. Mm -hmm. um, if you're approaching yoga as a spiritual practice, whether you're an asana practice or just a meditator, I think it's 
irrelevant. Like it still has relevance. I think it has a lot of important pointers in terms of how to work with the mind. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think what would be helpful is to, I mean, we, we're using the word ego in this talk because mm -hmm. it's a, it's a common English word that we can kind of latch onto and everyone has some sense of what that means. Right. But as we peel away the layers of what we're talking about in terms of yogic egotism or yeah yogic ego clinging right we have to we have to pause for a second and do some identification of terms right so in english we have a word ego and it's a thing right it's it's a solidified entity yeah but if we were having this conversation in another language or like yogic terms yeah if yeah. we're having this conversation in sanskrit or you know in classical chinese or mm -hmm. there isn't there isn't a word that solidifies down to a concrete thing that mm -hmm. that implies that there actually is right. an entity that in and of itself exists by itself. Right. And so we need to define that from the yogic perspective, the ego isn't a thing. The ego is a phenomenon that arises out of the interaction of multiple causes and conditions. Mm -hmm. It's like a mirage. Right. You can't say that there's no such thing as a mirage because there is a mirage, mm -hmm. but a mirage actually isn't a lake off in the distance like it appears. A mirage is the interplay of light and distance and heat waves that gives your eye the perception of water in the distance. So yogic, from a yogic terminology perspective, ego is a mirage of an abiding individuated self that arises when a bunch of conditions come together mm -hmm. and then there appears to be a separate person. Mm -hmm. The whole juicy, you know, mess of yoga is really to find out whether or not that's true. Mm -hmm. the whether big, the, big the juicy, self actually exists Yeah, or to not. investigate the very mm -hmm. assumption that there is such a thing right. as an abiding separate entity. Right an egoic entity. Right. So if we don't at least inject some of that into our yoga practice, mm -hmm. then usually the yoga practice is going to empower the assumption of an abiding thing called an ego, right. because that abiding thing called an ego is always looking for its own solidification. Right. right. I hope, I hope that's making sense, you know, yeah. to, so, so, I mean, I think the definition you're giving uh, is yogic and it's also very Buddhist, right? Anatta or Anatman. Sure. So it's like there is no intrinsically abiding self. And then even in the quote-unquote Hindu systems, they talk about it as like, okay, well, you're not the form at the least. You are something beyond the form, right? So basically anything ruled by the gunas, like thoughts, feelings, body, you know, body sensations, anything to do with the five senses, they say all those things ultimately are not what you really are, mm -hmm. right? And then you kind of start with that premise and then you use meditation practice and whatnot, jnana yoga, reflection, to observe those things and break that thing down and see if that's true or not, right? right. So that's, that's sort of the essence of yeah. yogic practice. And in a sense, you could say all the yogas sort of lead gradually to that state of disenchantment, in a sense, like realizing, oh wait, I can't find me in any of these things. These are not me. Where is that thing? Does it even exist? And if it is, it's beyond all those things. And then what is that? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of the, the big question and the big pursuit and the inquiry. Right. Yeah. Right. But that, the, the intersecting of that notion that, that even the notion that it, it's up for question, mm -hmm. I find doesn't happen that frequently. Right. In the in yoga. The yoga it happens in teacher training. Yeah. It happens in a weekend workshop on Vedanta or yeah. it happens, you know, where people who are already kind of deep into it are right. looking for more. But on, on the access point of mm -hmm. most of what's happening around the world as, as, as yoga, mm -hmm. the, that conversation doesn't, doesn't come up that often. Right. Right. And, and then, which is fine. It's like, if you're going to the gym or you're, if you're doing anything, you, if you look at the reason behind doing anything, if you practice a kind of self-honesty and a kind of self contemplation, the reason behind doing anything is always that there's some self agenda to get a greater level of fulfillment, mm -hmm. to decrease discomfort, increase comfort and pleasure, and to gain quote more 
whatever more is deemed by the individual mm-hmm. that's good for them. Right. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's built into our biological organism. But to think that that in and of itself is yogic is misconstrued. Right. Because innately when we do that, we're working within, a, within an assumed dualistic world based on principles that don't hold up. Right? I mean, this is the mistake of eternalism, right? If we're only running from our egoic desire to have less physiological discomfort and more pleasure for me, it's impossible to succeed at that because of the law of change. Mm-hmm. And so we keep getting deplorable results <laughs> and attempting to use yogic technology to secure the enduring experience of egoic pleasure for me, for mm-hmm. me, Kane. Mm-hmm. It never happens. I always stub my toe. Mm-hmm. Right, the stock market's up, the stock market's down, you bang your car. You can't, you can't control that level of the physical, mental reality through yogic technology. You could use yogic technology to observe the way the physical, energetic world operates and thereby gain insight into how to relate to it in a way that's, that's wise and relevant. And mm-hmm. that decreases suffering and increases yeah. joy. Right. So it's this, it's this tricky thing right where i see quite often yoga students they see the teacher you know do something and they think well when my body can do that when i could touch my toes or do the splits or stand Mm -hmm. on my head Mm -hmm. then perhaps i will have realized a deeper level of my you know spiritual nature and maybe if along the way we were looking at ourselves through the practice of yoga and gaining insight but just being more flexible or looking prettier has absolutely nothing to do with the type of insight that that relieves us of suffering and gives us freedom. Right, right. And so that's the split that sort of you we're talking about yeah. is like, you know, between obsession with the form, again, the body, the asana, how far I can stretch, how perfect my yoga posture looks. Is there a correlation between that and spiritual awakening? I mean, so we've been sort of defining spiritual liberation to some extent, right? Which is to become more free of our sort of ego concerns and ego binding habits and whatnot, identifying them and then softening them. Like it says in the second chapter of Yoga Sutras, right? Starving the the mental afflictions and the ego identifications is one of the functions or purposes of yoga. It's explicit. It's there. Right. So that would be, if that was our goal, then does asana and perfecting asana necessarily contribute to that? Right. Right? It's because like what you're saying is basically a lot of us who jump into the yoga world, um, start practicing yoga poses and that kind of when we don't have much education that becomes our goal right mm-hmm. it's like we want to look like the teacher we want to have the yoga body we want to be able to be this flexible and so like students always come up to me and apologize to me because they're not flexible right. and then i pull my hair out because i'm like that's not <laughs> the point i'm not trying to teach you that like, or they say they could never mm-hmm. come to your class because they're right 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 right, right someone right. at dinner how many yoga teachers I have teach heard yoga, that, right? yeah, yeah like yeah. i can't do yoga i'm not flexible or i'm too mm-hmm. old Right. I'm too overweight or um, those yeah. things just speak that how does that person know that when they mm-hmm. haven't come to the yoga class right. that's because the general air the common understanding the milieu of the world of yoga that's happening right now globally right. exudes that it exudes that the point is to attain some some certain aesthetic right physical physical or, yeah. or mental a, yeah. a certain air of like cultural oh, well, aesthetic zen. Right. it's like yeah. is that really yogic if you sort of have a zen ego Mm-hmm. Does that make you more awake? Of course it doesn't. I mean, it's not human. Mm-hmm. When your dog dies, you cry. That's what's human. You know, you, mm-hmm. we're not always, you know, flatline. Yeah, flatline <laughs> doesn't mean awake. Right. So you know, like, like you're saying, it's the, it's the simple, it's the simple introduction of the notion that the entire umbrella of yogic sciences has to do with observing ourself with a kind of compassionate but relentless honesty and using mm-hmm. all of the different technologies first and foremost as ways to observe the way that we're being. Mm-hmm. And if we use yoga for that, then a, then a seated spinal twist could actually help you wake up and doing forward bend or a chaturanga could help you wake up. But mm-hmm. you could do 108 sun salutations 
with under the false pretense that if you have cute triceps that you will be somehow more awake or you get more flexible right. you're somehow more awake well or, or just if i do 180 salutations i'll be more somehow awake miraculously yeah or yeah. mantras i mean mantras are classic for that right there's right. the assumption that if i just chant you know hundred thousand <laughs> right om namah shivaya that somehow magically mm -hmm. i'll be transformed i'll be saved or something mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and it, it just doesn't work. I've never seen I've never seen that be successful in producing kind of fruition in mm -hmm. people. Yeah. And and so you know what? So because of the basic law of physics of of cause and effect, there's always going to be some sort of effect from everything that we do. Mm -hmm. And because yoga is powerful, if you do asanas, they're not just exercise. There's something energetic in those imprinted positions that happens yeah. inside people. Yeah. And mantras and all that. There's some. There's some shakti there. You know, yeah. this is where like there's some power. There's some yeah, energy there's there. Something yeah. there. You know, and I don't know if anyone understands why it works that way, but it does. Something happens, mm -hmm. and it can empower our confusion and it can empower our stupidity. Yoga can have that function, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think it's like medicine. It's like herbs that way, right? Mm -hmm. If you just take a bunch of echinacea, it could give you diarrhea. Like the yeah. medicine's powerful. If you use it right, it can heal you. Right. And if you don't use it in the correct application, it can harm you or have yeah. some kind of side effect. Yeah. Well, so like if we look at asana, just say like we back up a little bit and we look at asana from the psychosomatic perspective, right? Meaning like, okay, if you put your body in a certain kind of position, it alters your mental state, right? If you slumped your shoulders forward, like everyone if you did that, if you just caved your chest in and just rounded your back really hard and dropped your head forward, and see how that feels versus if you pull your shoulders back like in warrior one and raise your arms up and take your gaze up and your legs are stable on the ground that gives you a certain type of somatic experience that could be transformational mm -hmm. right and i think that could be done with different intentions right depending mm -hmm. on so if someone who has that uh self-reflective awareness goes in and does a warrior one that could be profoundly liberating because it could help someone realize their physical mental experience is not solid, it's changeable, right? It's quite fluid, actually. And you can recondition your body-mind through doing asana and yoga practice. And, but sometimes I think we can get kind of stuck there, right? We get a little bit of experience of change or control, and then we kind of grip onto that. Mm -hmm. And that becomes why we do yoga, right? To change our experience, to escape from reality, to create this sort of super ego that's always happy and smiley and strong and empowered and powerful and like these very specific sort of characteristics like the that ideal, we generate the ideal yogi right the ideal me yeah is what i'm constructing with the yoga and the subtle difference there between doing that and doing the yoga to sort of see the changing fluid nature of the body mind and then gradually over time getting the fact oops sorry <laughs> that was my phone <laughs> getting real here <laughs> so getting the fact that actually oh these things aren't solid yeah yeah these things are fluid they're kind of things that come and go they pass by i could choose to identify with them or not i think that insight could be very liberating where it's a, it's a tricky it's a slippery slope where the other thing is is powerful too it's beautiful to be able to transform your experience it's beautiful to be able to empower yourself especially if you've been coming from an experience where your life has been very heavy and dark and you've had a lot of trauma and so you're conditioning the body mind is very heavy and dark and you know tense and locked up being able to break out of that can be extremely liberating mm -hmm. right but when we get caught up in that and through that process it becomes more about constructing a, another identity through that process mm -hmm. that's where we get again stuck and bound right yeah you know. yeah i mean the yoga sutras talk talk about that right it's like mm -hmm. that in a sense getting one pointed could be part of the process of developing your yogic capacity but getting one pointed could also be a major obstacle right so in a sense what you're saying is that we've got the the functioning of yogic practices of postures and breathing techniques and meditations that have a transformative quality to them that, that have a healing quality to them, that have a personal development quality to them, and that's mm -hmm. great. But if we if we come to yoga, let's say, with an injury and a health condition and 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 an emotional affliction, right. and through yoga we're able to transform those, 
and become more positive and have less pain. What happens if we don't, if we're not aware of the tendency of ego grasping is that, that the tendency of ego grasping is to grasp onto that new state as the mm -hmm. new and improved me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to think subconsciously. No one would walk into a yoga room and exclaim, exclaim that they've actually got it. But right. the aspect mm -hmm. of our ego clinging thinks that like, this is it, I got it. Mm -hmm. Now I've got, now I've really got what it's about. Mm -hmm. And if, if we're practicing the contemplative aspect of yoga and we look at things like the gunas and the kleshas, or we just observe the law of change, we know that that couldn't be the end right? because the law of change states that there's nothing that's going to stay put. The state right. that we develop through the practice of yoga is also unstable. Right. And there's no problem with that. Yeah. It's very liberating to see that. But in the moment that we've got a yoga student who's gone from a really difficult place of heavy affliction to a much more functional place, mm -hmm. it's difficult to then realize that you can't hold on to that state right. and that it's natural to get sad. It's natural to get sick sometimes. It's mm -hmm. natural to have mm -hmm. pain in the body. Mm -hmm. It's also not natural to be constantly, you know, like you said, in the heavy, dark state. Right. It's also not natural to be constantly in the bright, happy state mm -hmm. because of the function of the changing gunas. Right. Right. So it, in a sense, it's, it's like the yogic, the yogic conveyor belt that we really step onto it. It never lets you rest. It never lets, it never gives you the opportunity to, to what do they call it? Uh, rest on your laurels, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or to sort of um, exclaim your accomplishments because you're always aware of the changing reality of your own direct experience. Yeah. And if we're just in touch with that, the phenomenon of the yogi ego doesn't solidify. Right. It can't solidify. It solidifies when we, for a moment or a day or a week or a month or a decade, forget mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. and snap into the identification of being a, quote, spiritual person. Right. And exuding a, quote, spiritual persona. Mm -hmm. Now we're mm -hmm. actually caught caught back in the game again. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think all of us find ourselves hooked and unhooked, hooked and unhooked, hooked mm -hmm. and unhooked. Mm -hmm. And... If we're applying what yoga could actually, how it could serve us best, we end up getting hooked less of the time. Right. I think. Right. Yeah. I don't know that we could say it's you could. It's not about killing the ego for sure. It's about eradicating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just about being less, believing your own story, believing your own right. game less right. of the time. Right. Right. I like what you said earlier, though. It's like like a mirage. I mean, and the ego does quote-unquote, exist, right? It arises as an experience, as a phenomena. Right. But just like in everything else, like the clouds, it comes, arises, and dissipates. So the self-identity is intangible in that sense. The, the things that we associate with self are of that, right? And so the yogic wisdom is that we come into the direct experiential understanding of that through our practice in a way that, in a way that liberates us. Mm -hmm. And that would be sort of the point. So... If we can approach our yoga practice like that and walk into the room every day with that understanding, you can still do yoga to take care of your body and feel good and, and to manage your well-being. Absolutely. But can we do it with this understanding that, yes, this body will fall apart and right. it's not going to be here eventually. And yes, tomorrow something intense might happen and I might have no control over my emotion. But then I can come to my yoga practice to be with that experience as opposed to run away from it, you know, drown myself in alcohol or disconnect or do something violent, I can come in and in a supportive environment, be with my experience and strengthen my capacity to accept reality as it is, experience as it is, and to see the sort of intangible, changing nature of self and experience as it arises and goes. That's liberating, I think, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And we could still have yoga centers. We could still do asana every day together and meditate maybe, you know, maybe add more meditation and breath could be profound mm -hmm. in combination with doing the, the body practices. But I think what's unfortunate is when we just get caught up in the body practices and we get lost in it and it becomes this obsession of attaining this physical posture, this physical ideal, mm -hmm. which is like a big sidetracking, right? from if you compare it to what we're talking about now if that's someone's original intention is just to go refine their body mm -hmm. and become more athletic and become more physically healthy and kind of like enjoy the yoga culture that's fine 
that's a different intention. Right. And that could be a whole social, cultural experience for someone. And that's legit. But if we're attempting to truly approach yoga as a spiritual practice with some connection to its original roots and intentions, then when we look at going into the practice purely obsessed with the physicality of it and attaining a certain look or, or physical posture, then it becomes a huge sidetrack, right? Yeah. Like, I remember years ago, I mean, when I originally started doing yoga, uh, I really did believe, you know, I honestly did believe that if I did all these yoga postures and I attained them enough, I would gain certain abilities or I would become more awakened, you know. And in a sense, they can because they can undo some of the fixations in the body-mind, like you say, they could, they magically somehow liberate the energies and the pranas in the body, where it can start to deconstruct your ego patterns that are tr trained into your somatic system. Mm -hmm. So I think it does have liberating effects, but to a certain extent, I think there's a point of like diminishing returns. Yeah. At least for me, where I was doing more and more yoga postures, I was advancing more and more in the postures, and I hit a point where I was like, wait, I know I'm not these things, and why am I trying to do this? And it was like a ton of bricks when it hit me because I was really deep into the yoga practice on the postural level. And for me, I mean, I'm not saying this is the only reality or the only truth, but for me, the truth that I hit at a certain point was like, this is pointless. Like trying to attain these really advanced postures is pointless for me. Mm -hmm. That's where I, that's what I hit. Mm -hmm. And then I started to look at the posture practice as like a, a self-reflection tool. And as an opportunity for meditation and for sort of clearing my channels and keeping my body and mind healthy and clear to optimize it for meditation and to keep myself more in that uncertain place, that non-fixed state. So that's what I started to use the asana as. And not that advanced postures can't be used that way, but I think it's, it's more, there's more of a tendency, at least for me, I was just like trying to obtain the posture and I was just getting obsessed with that as a means of becoming more spiritually awake. Right. Which doesn't always translate, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of these things where we're saying, we're saying two totally different things that don't exclude each other. Like in a, mm -hmm. on one side, we're saying there's a valid reason for applying yogic body practices for health and for healing. And that can mm -hmm. transform a person's experience and can be used as a form of natural medicine Right. Or, or just, you know, as a form of, of, of weekly exercise and have a lot of benefits. Um, but if it's only, if it's only that, then it, 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 again, this might sound judgmental, but it shouldn't be called yoga. Mm -hmm. It could be called calisthenics or gymnastics or, you know, just physical exercise. And that, and that's great because or, those things yeah. don't carry along with them a cosmology and right. an, an entire tradition mm -hmm. of working mm -hmm. not just with the body. The, the, one of the big differences of a lot of body culture, right. and I love those things too. I mean, it, it's really fun to do those things. Sure. But when I'm Likewise. doing that, there's no cosmology. There's just, you know, just working with the physical body just for the fun of it, just to mm -hmm. develop your muscles and tendons mm -hmm. and ligaments or as an athletic endeavor. Yeah. That's cool. But when it falls under the umbrella of yoga, the place that gave rise to that term and these technologies was a place where body, mind, spirit were one thing and were always treated, you know, as a, as a composite. And therefore mm -hmm. that somehow still lives in all of those technologies. And so something's going to happen, right? And so if it's working with our emotions and it's working with our energies and it's working with all of these things, we get a transformative quality that can be healing. And that's awesome. I think yoga, yoga has a place to play in modern world and the modern treatment of human suffering and ailments. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of great effects and that can minimize side effects from other types of method treatments of um, mm -hmm. methods of right. treatment. Right. Um, and on the other side, we're saying almost the complete opposite, which is that if we, if we fixate on just that, we're bound to experience the disillusionment the failure of our efforts because you can't maintain the state indefinitely right. of being happy and healthy on a physical mental level because the body mind is a changing phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And those two truths do not fight with each other. They don't exclude each other. They're, they're like the sunny side and the, and the shady side of the hill, right? They're totally mm -hmm. the opposite of each other, but they exist together. And 
I think, you know, if we're coming to any kind of conclusion with this talk is, is that when those two things work together, we have a much more complete capacity to use yoga to get a kind of liberating quality and a kind of healthy, happy quality. Mm-hmm. Right, and, right, right, right. And it's just to it's just to know that each has its limitation. Yeah. You, we need to move our body. We need to pay right. attention to our body because, like you exampled earlier, when you sat with your you know chest caved in and your shoulders round, if you were to do that for eight hours a day, mm-hmm. it would change your emotional state and it would change your mental clarity. And now right. we could say your spirit's getting less bright yeah. just because of your posture. Yeah. So they're totally interrelated, mm-hmm. and yet perfecting your posture can't perfectly control your emotions or your spirit mm-hmm. you have to work directly in that realm to understand that that, that what we might call that that spiritual dimension the dimension of pure awareness right. does have brightness in and of itself mm-hmm. even when the body is is sick or mm-hmm. gosh i mean we could say that the summation of the yogic uh, contemplation is to understand that through watching change we know that the body will eventually go through a really large change called decomposition and it won't actually exist in this form anymore. Mm-hmm. What then? Did yeah. we do anything in our life that prepared us for that reality? Right. And to me, to have a system that applies the need for physical health, emotional health, mental health, and deals with the great questions of life, the right. fact that we die. Right. If you can do an hour and a half of, of <laughs> something that addresses all of all that, that, that's yeah. so potent. Yeah. And the fact that a lot of it gets left out, it, yeah. it irks me because, right, right, because right. I feel like it's like serving a five course meal, but the guests only get to taste one course, you know, yeah, like there's yeah, so much more yeah. juice to it. Well, I mean, again, this conversation is coming from like the desire to, to see people experience the richness of what this system is. And again, we're not necessarily poo-pooing asana practice at all. Not at all. It's like, it's actually beautiful, like it's you're awesome. saying, and it should be integrated into a larger context as is, is what we're talking about. Yeah. And I like the way you just put it, like there's the physical, there's the mental, there's the emotional. So it's like, as we're alive, we're going to be human. We're going to have ego arising. We're going to have, you know, physical needs and we can take care of our form in the most utmost way. But simultaneously to that, can we also come into more bare, like honest, authentic encounter with reality as it is, as it's a changing phenomenon, as we approach dissolution and death, physical dissolution and death, can we prepare the body-mind to be at peace with that process, mm-hmm. right? Like or the this, death of people we love. I right, mean, that's right. That's another big yeah. big thing yoga can help yeah. us with. Everyone we love is going to also die. Yeah. Our yeah. animals. Are, so to, yeah, like you said, we, it really hit a string earlier, the, the perfection thing. I've seen, mm-hmm. you know, I've had a lot of students over the years who came, you know, this is just one of the cliche things that happened, but it's sort of like the person with the engineer mind mm-hmm. who's really bent on perfection comes to the, you know, Ashtanga practice or whatever the most technical practice they could find is. Mm-hmm. Angar practice. Yeah, yeah. Angar is super, super alignment-oriented practice mm-hmm. and really works hard to perfect all of the poses. Right and actually exacerbates the right, tendency right. to judge themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it becomes a little bit of like of a yoga torture treatment. Right. Because right, now right. the person feels guilty about all the ways that they can't mm-hmm. match the ideal mm-hmm. of the perfect pose. Right, right. And right, right. I, I could see a little bit of that in myself in the early mm-hmm. time. And I don't yeah. have that kind of perfect, you know, yoga body even yeah. after couple yeah. decades of practice totally and yeah. I hit the same yeah. you know wall that mm-hmm. you hit in, in my practice where I asked myself what I did was I, I held myself to every asana by saying why am I doing this why would I do this mm-hmm. and if I couldn't answer in a way that made sense to me I took that asana out of my sequence mm-hmm. what what purpose is this serving in my real life yeah and I found I removed the vast majority of the poses I was doing because mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. couldn't come up with a reason why I needed to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, other than it was fun and it was difficult and it was challenging totally. and I thought it was pretty cool because I could stand on my hands in lotus or something. Yeah. But yeah. in reality, was it helping me more, more awake? No. Did it contribute to my self-care program? Not really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it was very sobering yeah. for me to come to that right. you know, realization and, right. Right. and let go of the idea of of achieving athletic excellence right. in the name of yoga. Yeah. In the yeah. name of gymnastics, cool. Right. But for me, in the name of yoga, mm-hmm. it felt like a 
I wasn't being honest to myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a really hard conversation to have. I, mm -hmm. I try, once I had that realization, I started giving that, that talk in teacher training. Mm -hmm. And I felt a lot of resistance yeah. from students who were really deep into the... They really bought the idea that advanced yoga asana was a direct track to spiritual awakening mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. weren't willing to contend with the idea of asking why. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember actually, interesting enough, um, I remember talking to this... I was at a little conference thing and I was talking to this guy who was going around the world researching and interviewing awakened people. And he had a whole... I think his name is Jeffrey Martin or something like that. And look at him up online, but he had categorized the different states of awakening talking to these people, and then he kind of went and talked to different types of practitioners of different spiritual practices. And we were having a conversation, and I told him I taught yoga and meditation, all these different things. And he was like, Yeah, oh, you do hatha yoga, interesting. He's like, Out of all the people I interviewed, probably hundreds, I've only probably met one person who's actually attained awakening through practicing just a physical practice. And I was like, Hmm, yeah. That makes sense. You know, it kind of mm -hmm. was a similar thing for me, like kind of understanding that I had in terms of, okay, if you just do the asana, it's not going to fully make you awake. Maybe very, very rare. And then he said there's these other more quirky systems um, that he kind of knew that were way more effective mm -hmm. if you're actually looking for, for awakening, mm -hmm. you know, if that's your goal. But right. yeah, if we're going to take asana as an awakening practice, we probably need to integrate some view and some meditation and some self-reflection, you know, deep self-reflection. And I did the same thing where I kind of took out a lot of the yoga postures too because either they were hurting me or I wasn't, you know, it was taking too much time <laughs> away from my meditation and my other practices that I felt like were more important for me at the time. Right. You know, at this stage of my practice. So, yeah, it's interesting. And, and what you said earlier about perfectionism and all that is really important because I think, you know, the physical obsession could be very injurious for a lot of people, and it's a, it is a difficult conversation to have because so many people love the physical practice, and I totally understand it. I yeah. do too, and I have loved it deeply. Yeah, for sure. And it's addictive and feels great. And so, you know, we, we become zealots and sort of fundamentalists when it comes to physical practice, you know? And I think that's something to, to reflect on and check too before we get reactive and get angry. Just like, okay, well, how attached am I to the physical practice and what's going on there? And to, to reflect, right? And to just check on that, too. Am I a yoga Nazi? <laughs> yeah, right. Seriously. But, yeah, but I've also seen, I've had students who've been caught up in perfectionism. And for them, the most healing thing for them was to do less yoga poses, mm -hmm. to do them more gently, and to be gentle and loving to themselves as they were doing it. Right, to be more self-accepting. Yeah, and, and I think that's the most healing practice versus trying to fit in. Or people who've already come in with body image issues, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just not the... I don't think it's the thing to do to like exasperate that mental affliction of I'm not good enough and so there's something wrong with me. Right. By pushing them into a class and making them have to look a certain way and feel, you know, a certain way. And Manipulate their body into a new form that they can't attain. Right. It was, I mean, that's a whole, we right. want to have a, we were talking off yeah. <laughs> about having a whole talk about body image. If this totally yeah. plays into the yoga ego. Right. The yoga ego thing. Like, mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a big it's a big part of it. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's something for us to just talk about and to reflect on and address openly, you know, not, not hide it underneath the rug and ignore because it's an issue and it hurts people psychologically, emotionally, physically, physically too. When you push your body into positions, they're not ready to go into before they're ready to be, you know, when you're really out of touch with feeling your body and, and moving with your body. And when it, when your practice is coming from self-hatred, or some other mental affliction, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think it tends to create the ground for physical injuries too, because the mind is just not in the right place. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's uh, a lot of, well, you've talked about it before when people are pushing, and as a teacher, you say, what would happen if you did less? Mm -hmm. And to see people, you know, think like if they did less, they would be moving the opposite direction of the goal. Right, right. When in reality, that moment that they do less, their whole something in their whole being relaxes and they settle into to the experience that they're actually having and stop running from the experience that that they don't want to be having trying to get the experience that they would prefer to be having and like mm -hmm. there's a mini illumination in that moment right right and surrender and the acceptance in that middle ground right like yeah where you're not striving to get something or you're not trying to run away from something you're not pushing away an experience but you just drop in to the experience as it is and you are at peace with it. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I think, you know, we're coming back around to the, to the whole topic of yoga ego and yoga identification. And maybe we've spoken a bit, you know, critical of that. I know I certainly have. Um, and that's in part because I feel like it's, it gets less, you know, less voice, but less press. Yeah. yeah well, but what I really want to say about about that aspect is that it is actually the ground for awakening Mm -hmm. and the trick is to recognize that tendency in ourself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so the tendency to identify is of course an obstacle but the obstacle is actually the ground it becomes the ground for getting traction the ground for actually standing up the ground for rising up Mm. when we admit it Mm-hmm. when we catch ourselves in our own game yeah and there's no self-judgment around that yeah. it's just it's a kind of relentless honesty without judgment right and so i practice it all the time and find myself getting hooked all the time yeah. right snapping to an identification yeah right and in the moment i look at okay well there's that i call, in my you know personal teaching i call it self-contraction that's mm. the term i use self-contraction that's mm-hmm. the way it feels to mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. the body tightens up and i contract into a version of myself that's solidified right and then i notice that i'm either grasping towards something i want or pushing away from something i don't want right right and if we can catch ourselves in the posture of the yoga ego then that then becomes the ground for waking up because now, as they say, we've caught the thief within the house. <laughs> we've, we've actually had insight into the right. way egoism functions within our own system, within our own direct experience, and then yeah. we can see why. So for the listeners, what, what I love to, to play with is this make it fun, make it kind of like a, a mystery, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. solving a mystery right? Find out in what ways do you snap into ego clinging, snap into identifying, snap into a solidified something that could be given an adjective or a noun, Mm -hmm. right? And then see why you did that. Why did I do that? Oh, I felt uncomfortable. I felt threatened by that person. I was worried what this person would think, or I wanted myself to be perceived like this. Mm. There's always a level of needing to project or protect right the version of ourself that we want the world to reflect back to us Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. the yoga ego the yoga ego is just that thing with the stamp of yogic aesthetic on it it has mala beads and it says om and it eats vegan or whatever it is (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's it's adorned with the 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 yogic emblems Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. but when we catch ourselves doing that and we admit that we do it we're actually like standing on the ground of awakening mm-hmm. and the very obstacle becomes the reason why we, we undermine our own right. habitual egoism. Right. right. And then we can still continue to do our yoga, eat vegan and chant home right. and wear our mala beads if you want. It's not an issue, but it's like, are we aware that, that we're doing that or how deeply are we in that, that game and getting deeper into it and stuck into it and using that as sort of like a, what do you call it? It's a crutch. It's a, a crutch. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, the mala beads and the you know vegan raw pie have absolutely no meaning in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. It's through the projection, as if you're more spiritual if you eat vegan blueberry cacao raw pie. Mm-hmm. Like it has absolutely mm-hmm. nothing to do with the spiritual mm-hmm. realm. Yeah. But when we think it does, then we're in self delusion. Yeah. And then when you get underneath that and you and you find that place that's really insecure right afraid like afraid of losing money identity security love that's real right to me at least that's really vulnerable and that's a little bit more honest Mm -hmm. and then just to be with that place and see what that place is really needing and really wanting and then just sort of to be able to acknowledge that and be with that place to me is profound you know, yeah, profound without, next without step. protecting it, without mm-hmm. getting getting yeah. beyond it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point because if you're listening and you haven't started doing this type of you know deep self reflection practice and peeling away the away the layers of ego clinging, when you start doing that, what you touch is is this scary place of not knowing, of having this very mm-hmm. unsheathed, unguarded. 
right. human naked experience. Yeah. And what happens when you don't cover it up? Yeah. Or try to get out of it? Yeah. Right. And you hang out with the vulnerability, and and sometimes it just hangs out there, and you learn, you know, like you've been running from it, or I've been running from that, say, for a long time, right? My whole life doing all these other things. And the first time I encounter it. It's probably scary. I might not be able to hang out there that long. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, I learn how to hang out there more. And then eventually, that place just sometimes transforms, or softens, or self liberates, mm-hmm. right? And then I'm just left with space, and ease, and just awareness. Yeah, there's a there's an assumption that 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 the scariness of that place. Means that something is bad there, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. something's hurtful there. Right. So we try to run away from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the whole, the whole impetus for the need mm-hmm. to ego cling. Right. Why mm-hmm. would we do it? Why would we do that? Why would we snap mm-hmm. into a form that we know when we look at it, we know it's not really what we are. But why would we do it? Yeah. Yeah. Because we're afraid of that. Yeah, to hide from that place. That big gaping hole, that big openness, that dark place. But the interesting thing is that then we spend so much energy running from that place inside of us. So much energy, you know. And and, And also as a result, feeling like something's wrong with us and running in that whole loop of, affliction pain and suffering like and misery like as you're saying this it's this is like yeah <laughs> this is egoism this is grasping this is aversion yeah. this is you know fear of death this right. is the whole klesha cycle yeah. and then but when you actually can get into to the underbelly and encounter that vulnerable place it's actually just a sensation it's an experience and it's actually not that bad and it's okay and it's not a big deal. Right. <laughs> you didn't die. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, or no one ever died from that. <laughs> right. Or I did die, you know, and we're still here. Right. Yeah. The mirage. The I died. Yeah. All the fighting part died. The ego died, you know. But we're still here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that feels cool. complete. Yeah. Feels yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Yoga Uncensored.